0: Sun. You can hear their hearts beating loud. Can't keep those California Indians down They're Hello everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith.
1: Struggles are all interconnected. So the fact that these very poor, humble people from uh, a remote part of Mexico travel all the way to the United States to try to connect with ordinary people in the United States. Um, it shows that you know borders are artificial creations, um, and people uh, are engaged in similar struggles against the powerful, uh, whether it be drug cartels, transnational corporations, um, corrupt governing uh, officials. So. We see this kind of solidarity, this uh, unifying of struggles also in the recent Zapatista initiative that began in the middle of this past
0: year. Today on American Indian Airwaves, the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico and more. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone fool in the black of the night, you can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley, mm-hmm. and you know when come a candy blow, Today on American Indian Airwaves, we recognize, celebrate, and reflect on the January 1st, 1994, historical event when the Zapatistas declared war on the Mexican government on behalf of the country's indigenous peoples suffering from perpetual state and organized criminal violence throughout the Chiapas-Mexico region. Launched on the same day that the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect, the EZLN seized government offices and occupied thousands of acres of private land and demanded democracy, liberty, and justice for all indigenous peoples. The EZLN's general command issued the first declaration of the Lacandon jungle, which called for the creation of a national liberation movement fast forward on february 9th of 1995 the mexican government escalated the militarization of the mayan indigenous peoples throughout chiapas when they suddenly launched a military offensive against the ezln and their communities of supporters both inside and outside of chiapas mexico and implemented a strategy of civilian-targeted warfare, which led to the army displacing over 20,000 campesinos, destroying the Zapatistas' headquarters, and the military started constructing new military bases throughout Chiapas. The militarized incident led to the negotiation of the San Andreas Peace Accords in 1996 and the first Intercontinental Equantro, in which, during the week of January 3rd through the 10th, the first National Indigenous Forum was held in San Cristobal de la Casas. The forum was attended by 24 commandantes of the EZLN, as well as nearly 500 representatives of over 30 indigenous groups from throughout the country. A month later, on February 16th, the Zapatistas and the Mexican government signed the first set of accords, which comprises of 40 pages of national reforms to be undertaken regarding indigenous peoples' rights and culture. For the hour, our guest provides us an in-depth analysis on the importance of the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance to systemic state violence against the Mayan indigenous peoples, their successes in exercising their rights to self-determination, sovereignty, and autonomy, and their successes over the past 28 years, despite the Mexican governments, the military, and organized criminal syndicates' ongoing violence against the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. Marcus Lopez, executive producer and co-host of American Indian Airwaves, and myself speak with Richard Stoller Schulk, a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University, a longtime activist who's involved with the School of Chiapas, which is an organization of grassroots activists and communities working to support the autonomous indigenous Zapatista communities of Chiapas, Mexico. School for Chiapas was created in the mid-1990s by individuals searching for ways to make the world a better place in working to create a world where all worlds fit. We start the interview asking how the September 26, 2014 incident surrounding the kidnapping and murder of 43 male students from the Oyazinapa Rural Teachers College, were forcibly abducted and then disappeared and later found murdered in Iguala Guerrero, Mexico, connect to the continuous state violence in Mexico and how it relates to the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination, and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico.
1: Well, um, if you're referring to the Ayotzinapa disappearance of the 43 students at the uh, teaching college, um, um, uh, and that event is officially a forced disappearance because it's never been conclusively demonstrated what happened. The government has been part of a cover-up, and what has been demonstrated is that Uh, Government security forces and military were acting in collusion uh, with organized crime drug cartels to make the disappearance happen. So um, these were mostly indigenous young men at a teacher's college who were going to go back and serve their communities. And the teacher's colleges, the um, uh, rural teacher's colleges, escuelas rurales normales in um, Mexico have a long history. Uh, of consciousness raising and organizing in particularly indigenous, but uh, generally poor rural communities. Um, and that has made them a thorn in the side of a succession of Mexican governments. So they were already sort of in the limelight, uh, in the the sort of target uh, of the, uh, the government. And then when they were organizing an annual protest, um, the uh, drug cartels and the, and the state came together to disappear them and, you know, quite probably uh, kill them. One uh, theory is that um, the students may have, in their protest movement when they took over some, uh, some buses to transport them to a, to a protest, that they may have uh, unknowingly taken over a bus that the drug cartels were using to transport drugs mm-hmm. northward. And so that brought down the heat, but if that's the case, it demonstrates the level of collusion between the criminal organizations and the state. So some people refer to Mexico as a narco state or more generally to narco political violence. There is so much intertwining uh, of organized crime and uh, the state that it's kind of hard to separate them. Um, And we're seeing a lot of that now seeping its way into uh, the state of Chiapas where the San uh, Rebellion occurred, that uh, kind of collusion between the government and the drug cartels and the rising levels of
2: violence. Richard, because of the fact that this issue is the anniversary in where mothers and fathers went to North America, United States, that is to say, and had community meetings spread the word, What's so important about this anniversary? What does this symbolize?
1: Well, um, one thing that it symbolizes is that struggles are all interconnected. And so the fact that um, these very poor, humble people from uh, a remote part of Mexico travel all the way to the United States to try to connect with ordinary people in the United States, um, it shows that um, you know, borders are artificial creations, um, and people... Uh, are engaged in similar struggles against the powerful, uh, whether it be drug cartels, transnational corporations, um, corrupt governing uh, officials. So we see this kind of solidarity, this uh, unifying of struggles also in the recent Zapatista initiative that began in the middle of this past year, um, where a group of a delegation of Zapatistas from Chiapas set sail for Europe. Uh, on a boat that they called La Montaña, the mountain. So the mountain sailed across the sea and they spent 47 days crossing the Atlantic and went on a solidarity kind of tour. Um, The Mexican government wants to break these bonds of solidarity and atomize and isolate people, which is sort of what the neoliberal capitalist model does also to try to make people just into uh, worker cogs in in the machine. And the Zapatistas have been very creative in breaking out constantly from all the encirclements and all the attempts to stop them. Um, So when the Zapatistas were engaging in their solidarity outreach, the Mexican government initially refused to even issue them passports to travel to Europe. And the uh, the Mexican foreign ministry, uh, in a kind of dismissive statement, said, well, we're not going to issue passports to these extemporaneous people. (laughs) and so the Sapatistas took that up as a badge of honor and said you're right we are extemporaneous we don't fit in your mold and we have a right to travel and to be part of uh, international solidarity and and once again the solidarity that emerged around that just like in the original January 1st 1994 Zapatista uprising it was the solidarity movement uh, that stopped the government from just using repressive coercive measures against them and so the pressure on the government forced the issuing of the passports and they went on this tour and they connected. Um, And in doing that, the delegation of of Zapatistas uh, visited indigenous people in Europe, for example, the Sami people in Lapland in the northern part of of Europe who are facing really very similar kinds of struggles where there's a high-speed train line that is threatening the integrity and cultural uh, heritage of the Sami community. it's just like the so-called Maya train that the Mexican government and transnational capital are proposing to build and destroy the livelihood and identity of Mayan indigenous communities in uh, Mexico. So I think in both of these cases, the Ayotzinapa uh, protest, uh, student uh, disappearance, and the, um, uh, the mobilization to put pressure on the government and the, the Zapatistas to, in their um, uprising to say, ya basta, we've had enough. Uh, It's been a kind of test of the ability of social movements to transcend the borders that states try to impose on them. Um, In this era of climate change, it makes no sense or global pandemics to have um, the policy response just be uh, by governments when really uh, it has to be a global kind of response. There's no way that you can wall yourself off or wall people in in this um, era that we're in. Um, So the Zapatistas, the students in Ayotzinapa, and uh, many others in struggle in Mexico and and around the world um, are simply ignoring these artificial, coercively imposed
2: boundaries and reaching out in solidarity with each other. Richard, you mentioned many things, but for our listeners who maybe just tuned in or maybe have a lot of issues that are involved with many other things in North America. Take us back to that day in the beginning of the Zapatistas. They're against the um, the plan of more development within Mexico and especially Central America. Take us back and the highlights of that for our listeners, please.
1: Sure. Um, we just saw the 28th anniversary of the um, uh, public aspect of the Zapatista uprising, January 1st, 1994, um, on New Year's, the Zapatistas, Mayan communities from the state of Chiapas in southeast Mexico, rose up and um, announced that they were in rebellion against the state and against what they considered to be a, a bad government. Um, and actually, they had been uh, organizing their movement for a good 10 years before that, quietly. And uh, the symbol, of course, of the Zapatistas is that um, is seen in their imagery around the world is the ski mask. And the Zapatistas have pointed out that when they put on their ski mask, then suddenly they're noticed, they're seen. Uh, But when they take off their masks, then they're invisible indigenous people as they have been invisibilized and marginalized for 500 years. Um, So it, it certainly rocked the power centers in Mexico. This was the date, January 1st of 1994, that the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, went into effect, uh, symbolizing uh, the power of global capital against the uh, desires and needs and aspirations of communities, uh, indigenous communities, pheasant communities, and others.
0: Ian, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller-Scholk, on the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination, and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. Um, and so the Zapatistas had tried every other way uh,
1: to get attention um, to the causes that were being ignored, and finally they rose up in rebellion. It was largely a symbolic rebellion. It was an armed rebellion, but that was kind of to get attention. Um, The Mexican government responded with their own version of power, coercive force, um, sending in the military to try to wipe out indigenous communities that had risen up in this form of rebellion. But as I mentioned before, uh, that triggered this spontaneous wave of massive protests as far away as mexico city to say well you can't just um, exterminate people you have to talk to them you have to take a look at what is it that they're trying to get you to see that you have ignored all this time so that led uh, after 12 days uh, after the uprising to a ceasefire a process of negotiation uh, in which the Zapatistas demanded autonomy Uh, the right to govern themselves according to their own uh, customs and their own priorities. This was a challenge to the legitimacy of uh, the government. The government strung them along with negotiations from 1994 until 1996 when the San Andres Accords were signed, uh, an agreement between the Zapatistas and the Mexican government recognizing the principle of uh, indigenous rights and culture. Um, but uh, it was a vaguely defined uh, agreement, and as we know, agreements with indigenous peoples in the United States and elsewhere have often been uh, ignored and shredded. Um, so the Zapatistas were not placing their faith in the government and the government's word, uh, but rather they went ahead and implemented their version of autonomy in the meantime. And fortunately, that uh, was a a good move because by the time the government finally, many years later, in 2001, uh, got around to passing legislation supposedly to implement the San Andres Accords on indigenous rights and culture, um, the legislators had totally changed the meaning of what they had agreed to in 1994. And the Zapatistas, one more time, tried to uh, point this out. They organized the March of the Color of the Earth, the People of the Color of the Earth, from Chiapas. Uh, caravan up to Mexico City, camped out in front of the Presidential Palace and the Congress, um, and uh, Comandante Esther uh, gave an historic address to the Congress. At first, they didn't want to allow her to speak, but there were people masked in the Zocalo in the main plaza outside, um, and so that, you know, again, that solidarity movement and pressure uh, forced the government to allow her and the
2: Zapatistas
1: to have their voice heard.
2: Um, and yeah, so Richard. It's laid out R- what Richard,
1: what's about?
2: Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, Richard. That the Comandante Cremona, was not it? Was it not? Um, uh, it was Esther. Esther. Esther Yes.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, that was a powerful statement and a powerful event uh, in the Zócalo and within the whole city of um, Mexico City and also the region, complete meeting because my memory is that they had a caravan throughout Mexico from the different variety of communities that they solidified. Talk about that for a second.
1: Absolutely. I traveled on part of that caravan. Many
2: other people did
1: solidarity activists from around the world. And it was very moving because everywhere they went, the Zapatistas were able to talk directly to ordinary people in Mexico with a very different language from the way politicians do when they're on campaign tours. And it, it they were received with kind of open arms and wild enthusiasm as people uh, for the first time realized that you know politics doesn't have to be about the agenda of the elites that you can mm-hmm. make your own politics make your own government um and i think that's what the government most feared it wasn't a small group of people in a remote corner of mexico who had taken up arms symbolically it was the power of delegitimizing uh, repressive and exclusionary and elitist forms of government. Um, so uh, Mexico has never been the same, and in some ways the world has never been the same since the Zapatista uprising. It's been an inspiration you're, for many you're social so, movements. You're so,
2: yes, you're so right, Richard. Um, Larry had a question specifically about the San Andreas Accord. Larry.
0: Well, yeah, and I think you, you kind of touched on it, but... Um, you know, when, I, when I'm hearing you de- describe the San Andreas Accord, I think of, uh, you know, na- nation states like the United States uh, uh, attempting to manage uh, uh, decolonization, if you will, and however uh, that looks. And I guess for sake of argument purposes, how the U.S. government uh, supposedly honors, uh, signed and ratified treaties with indigenous peoples and then completely ignores the treaties that were signed and and never ratified. And so, when I'm thinking about the San Andreas Accords, and you're talking about um, uh, Chiapas uh, communities establishing their their autonomy outside of the San Andreas Accords, it's really a it sounds like a refusal and, and disavowal, if you will, of the state, in this case, the the Mexican government uh, attempting to manage. "Quote unquote," the indigenous peoples and in the Chiapas region, and and so we always talk about these anniversary dates and talking about, and we talk about these historical events. And when we talk about the uprising and what's transpired since uh, nineteen, you know, ninety four. What are some other um, historical or revolutionary um, uh, successes and trials and tribulations, if you will, and what makes today, uh, this this year, this time uh, different compared to the last couple of years since the COVID-19 pandemic emerged? Uh-huh.
1: Um, well, um when the uh, the government signed the San Andres Accords, it was um, because there was so much mass mobilization and pressure, but what the government wanted to do was interpret the concept of indigenous rights and autonomy um, in a very distorted way, which is not unique to the Mexican government. It's the way states have dealt with indigenous peoples really around the world, and that is, oh, you can have your museum... Um, and we can recognize you as kind of an extinct great vestige of the past, um, but you know, we are not going to allow you to organize collectively and collectively demand uh, rights um, as a community, including rights to ancestral lands and resources. So some academics have referred to this strategy as neoliberal multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's a a very thin sort of uh, recognition and what the Zapatistas have said is we're not waiting for your recognition. We already exist. We already have rights Um, and whether you recognize it or not, we are going to implement those rights in our communities, our autonomy. Mm -hmm. And there are real material issues at stake here too because um, what the Mexican government and many governments want to do is open up lands for exploitation by global capital. And uh the logic of global capital is what earns the most private profit for wealthy large scale corporations. And that's very different from the logic of, for example, indigenous communities that um are more interested in a sustainable model of of living um on the land and uh with the um with nature. Um and indigenous communities also have a, a different mechanism of decision making where um, it's not about individuals who can be bought off during an election campaign, but it's about the power of a community coming together and exercising their collective will. And so the Zapatistas have done this in their autonomous communities. They've created a model of government that's very much grassroots, uh, horizontal um, from the, the ground up. Um, and well, since you mentioned COVID, um, this is a, a good example. I mean, the Governments around the world have generally done a pretty poor job of dealing with a problem that transcends the level of individual countries and politicians. Um, the Zapatistas have closed off their communities during this time of COVID and are working at a community level to try to keep themselves safe. Um, but um, it's been a very trying time. Uh, this anniversary, the 28th anniversary of the Zapatista Uprising, is a testament to the staying power of their uh, model of autonomous self-government and um, the communities recognizing their own rights. Uh, the fact that they've been able to hold strong and actually even expand and create new caracoles, new government centers of autonomous governance in the Zapatista territory really is a testament to uh, the growth of this model from below in the face of intense counterinsurgency, attempts to destroy, divide, co-opt in any other way, uh, hide the relevance of the, of the movement, uh, manipulate the media. So, that uh, the anniversary, I think, it's one more anniversary, and the Zapatistas, in their recent um, uh, trip uh, to Europe, have made it very plain that they're not going away anytime soon, that this is a, a movement and a model that is not just about them either, that is really about justice and freedom and democracy, all the things that they included in their original list of demands on January 1st of 1994. The government was scratching their head when they saw this the um, the declaration of war, the Sapatistas in 1994, it's like, what is this? We've never seen anything like that. Well, that's precisely the point because this wasn't about a negotiation for crumbs. This was about really a fundamental difference in the conception of power that uh, puts power in the hands of people and communities at the grassroots.
2: Richard, the trip, the journey, the 200 delegates that toured Europe and uh, the, the involvement through the years, not only at the Zapatistas National Liberation Army, invited the National Indigenous Congress and the People's Front for the Defense of Water and the Land of Morales, Puebla, and Tlaxcala. We want to mention why, or could you mention why, that the subcomandante Marcos changed the name to subcomandante Moises and this murder of Samir Flores Soberranes, how does that fit into the honoring of those people, even for the Comandante Romona and many other people that have left, and many other young people that are now in command, if you will, unpack that for us, please.
1: Okay, um, so the, the Zapatistas have always made a point that this isn't about uh, a leader and a governing structure from above, but their movement is about creating empowerment from below. Um, The world media and governments and politicians have never understood this, so they wanted to make Marcos into the leader of the movement. Um, And the Zapatistas always made it clear that he was a spokesperson for a larger movement that consisted of networks of communities in Chiapas and principles that apply around the world. Um, And so at one point when the government repression um, led to the death of a community member uh, by the name of Galeano um, then the former subcommander Marcos said okay he died, I died too I am now going to take the name of Galeano so that he will live on and you know, there's no leader here and there are others who step up to become the spokespeople like um, subcomandante Moises um, and the movement continues um, the image of the caracol, the snail shell, the kind of circular infinity symbol that has resonance for Mayan people kind of indicates uh, this uh, Zapatista vision uh, from the indigenous communities of how they see their movement as uh, a movement of continuity and a movement of uh, everyone being involved and wrapped up in this movement rather than a top-down kind of thing. So bringing in uh, the struggles in Puebla, in Morelos, and all the other indigenous communities that are also resisting uh, the uh, forced displacement by global capital and forces of the state, um, is really indicative of this inclusivity of the Zapatista vision. It's only since the Zapatista uprising of 1994 that the 62 or so indigenous peoples' uh, uh, nations of Mexico have come together and formed the National Indigenous Congress uh, in 1996. And that Congress has been growing in strength. Um, they formed a um, a representative indigenous council of governance for the entire country uh, uh, before the last um, uh, presidential election in Mexico and even symbolically ran an indigenous woman candidate from the state of Jalisco, Marichui, um, so that. Uh, the government's attempts, again, to fragment, isolate, divide, impose barriers, separate people, um, have always um, um, led to an end run by the Zapatistas that we, we don't recognize your authority to impose these boundaries and these limitations on us.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk. On the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination, and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. Um,
1: a common thread that many of the communities uh, that is uniting many communities now is the resistance to mega projects of global capital. These are mining, uh, other extractive industries, massive um, uh, energy projects, damming up rivers to form hydroelectric dams, uh, infrastructure projects, uh, uh, high-speed rail lines, um, ports, and, um, uh, and, and so forth. And these are um, projects that uh, are not bringing benefit to the indigenous communities. They haven't consulted the indigenous communities, or they do sham consultations, because under international law, indigenous people have a right to be consulted first before any of their ancestral territories are used by the government for these sorts of, of purposes. So um, the governments of Mexico, and that includes the current government of Lopez Obrador, even though he presents himself as a friend of the indigenous people and a progressive leader, but he's doing exactly the same thing, of riding roughshod over the, uh, the will of the communities. Um, and uh, when people resist, a number of activists like Samuel Flores, who is an um, environmental defender, uh, wind up getting assassinated. And then uh, the assassins operate with impunity, either at the behest of or in collusion with the corporations and the state. Um, And uh, so these issues are really connecting people all over the country. Um, So um, uh, mega projects and uh, rampant global uh, capitalism without concern for uh, the will of the community, um, the intertwined violence of criminal organizations, transnational corporations, and the state, and the total impunity with which these dark forces are operating. Um, So indigenous communities are, are organizing and pushing back. One way is to simply declare themselves as autonomous and say, well, that government's not working for us, so we are going to make our own government and ignore the official government. Um, and in some cases, some of the communities, the indigenous communities, have also formed community self-defense groups, um, self-defense uh, uh, to police their natural resources against those who are um, violating their, their resources, the predatory uh, forces. Um, and. It may not be an ideal solution, but it's kind of an indication um, that um, this is really a struggle for life and death. The uh, uh, indigenous communities in Mexico and really throughout Latin America often refer to these extractive industry mega projects as projects of death.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stuller Schulte on the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance self-determination and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. We're taking a short break and we'll be right back with the second segment of today's special programming. Batista National Anthem here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we continue our special programming on the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self determination, and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. We are speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University and community activists involved with the School of Chiapas, which is an organization of grassroots activists and communities working to support the autonomous indigenous Zapatista communities of Chiapas, Mexico. And now part two of our special program, on the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination, and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico.
2: Richard, thank you so much for that. Uh, reminds me of December 14th of last uh, month, uh, Subcomandante um, Marcos gave an account of the safe return to the Zapatistas community and, and Chiapas and, and the re- 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 reasserted Many times within that, that thanks to the global community and the communities, uh, indigenous communities, and their particular supporters within Mexico, that um, the big thank you. But also, he says the reminder of the testimony of Ronco or Ricardo Robles, and um, about the Tarimada of the Ramuri delegation that accompanied the closing of the March of Color of the Earth of the Zocalo, like you mentioned. And he said that we are many and that he clarified the road is full of hope, full of which the uh, a road which emanates from the awareness that the road is long and their trust and their decision to fight and their strength, their resistance and the face of adversities and their suffered throughout history. It's so much reminded me of a lot of many native peoples in North America. During the 1800s and 1900s, that share that same hope and they share the same struggle, and about how uh, this question of what does it make the difference between a tiny group of natives, indigenous peoples, lives that is fights. And the simple answer is because it turns out that we live. Did you see that when you were in Mexico about this hope, the eyes, the strength, the composition, the spirit of the people is about lifting their spirits and about this hope? Why don't you share with our listeners what you felt as you traveled these streets and the journey when you were down in Mexico and what this the is not only an in indigenous uh, Congress, and also the uh, People's Front, the Defense of Water, Land, and Morales, Puebla, and Tuxera, It's not just a question of organizations, but a question of raising the spirit. When Fabiana Hirsch-Dubin went to the Northern Convention uh, up in northern Mexico, and she reported back to us about the enormity of the strength, the enorm- enormous spirit. Talk about that for us for a second.
1: Sure. I think the Zapatista uprising has symbolically given hope to many people, not only in Chiapas, but really around the world. uh, Because uh, you've heard the saying that, um, you know, um, we are the change we've been waiting for or, you know, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think that that's the kind of hopeful spirit, because if we are hoping – for the government or some external force to come and save us, then we are not going to be saved from climate change and pandemics and um, and all the evil forces that are uh, creating suffering in the world. The hope is really in us. And once that realization occurs, then it's just a total paradigm shift. Um, and so you feel that in the Zapatista communities. You go into the communities and there are fiestas and people are – celebrating what they've been able to accomplish together, not focused on material things, but focused on uh, that collectivity and the feeling of community that comes out of that. Um, Even the tedious aspects of organizing, having an all-day assembly, a meeting to make a seemingly small decision, but they come out of those Meetings with a feeling that, wow, we are solid. We have now all together made that decision. We are behind it. We can do this. The seemingly impossible uh, when uh, all the teachers left the Zapatista communities after the uprising, and the Zapatistas said, okay, we're going to start from scratch and build our own education system. And they did it. Um, They had some help from solidarity activists, teachers, uh, students from Mexico City and elsewhere who worked with the communities, but they were in control of the process. And so there's a tremendous amount of pride um, in the non-Sapatista communities where the government tries to divide and co-opt. When the government came in with aid after the Zapatista uprising and gave it to non-Sapatistas, many of the non-Sapatista indigenous people stopped planting t- corn, abandoned their cornfields and, and many of their traditional ways, really. Um, and it had a terrible, devastating effect on the communities. But you go into the Sapatista communities, and they're planting and harvesting, and corn is seen, especially in Mayan communities, as a kind of part of the cycle of life. The uh, The Popol Vuh, the sacred text, uh, talks about human beings being made of corn and returning to the earth that gives the corn. Um, so that kind of spirit is very much present. When Mari Chui, the uh, symbolic presidential candidate, uh, was touring the country, again, just like when the Color of the Earth Caravan that Fabiana and others participated in and were energized by, when she toured the, the country, the same thing. People came out to say, wow, there's someone who looks just like me and who is actually talking about the issues I care about. There is hope. Um, we can govern ourselves. Um, the uh, the encounters that the Zapatistas have opened a space for uh, have been tremendously hopeful. They're sort of like many Woodstock celebrations that the Zapatistas have created this dynamic rather than the kind of old model of a hierarchical, we have the correct party line and we're gonna tell you what to do. The Zapatistas said, we're gonna create a space and invite people of goodwill and people at the bottom of society to come together and talk to each other about what makes a better future, and it's tremendously empowering. So that's the, the hopefulness. I went on some of the um, the Escuelita Zapatista. The Zapatistas opened a, a space for what they call the little school about the philosophy of their movement and invited people from outside the communities to come spend a week living with the Zapatista family, reading the narratives, the kind of not highfalutin theory, but just what ordinary people in the Zapatista community said about what gives them hope. And you would sit in the evenings um, and read those with the family you're staying with and discuss, and you could see the excitement. Um, during the day, you go out with the family and go out to the cornfields, go work and see the everyday existence so that the hope isn't that somebody is going to come in Uh, with a whole bunch of money and build some big mega project and maybe there'll be some crumbs. The hope is from the the people and their organized communal power themselves. So I think it is a very hopeful movement and uh, you go into the communities and they're brightly colored murals representing the hope of the communities and often the words hope and and various other uh, positive imagery are physically represented in the the artwork and in the songs in the you know, that are sung in the, the communities um, so it is an exciting movement and um, when the, the the government was trying to claim that the zapatista movement was petering out that they ceased to exist because for a while the zapatistas had kind of gone back to their communities and were not making a lot of public declarations uh, the zapatistas um, uh, organized a march of 40,000 Ski mass Zapatistas coming down from the communities into the towns of, of Chiapas, um, a silent march. And they issued a statement saying, did you hear the sounds of our silence? So I think there's a lot of hopefulness there, and um, uh, you know, people uh, in the outside world don't always hear it. Um, but very often, when we are exposed to that alternative vision of what a society could be, um, it, uh, the hope is infectious.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller-Scholk on the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination, and successes in uplifting the indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview.
2: Thank you, Richard. Uh, the uh, notion of the strategy of the Zapatistas, the linking about the problems of the peoples of is is everyone, which is everything, is global, and that you already expressed that, and and the notion of the idea of anti-capitalist horizon, which is coming to grasp with that and the blossoming of whatever that means, which which begs the question of uh, what, what do you want the North Americans to take away from our discussion?
1: Well, I think one thing is that um, this is not a unique, tiny phenomenon that occurred in one remote corner of the world, That this is really about all of us. Um, and at first it may seem unfamiliar, it may look unfamiliar, uh, but when we look past the superficial differences that people have, for example, in the Zapatista communities versus the lives that we may have perhaps in a more urban industrialized society, and we look at really the meaning behind the way that they're organizing and the call for a more just world, then we are all, in that sense, part of the Zapatista movement. When the Zapatistas tried to call attention to the difference between conventional politics and their movement uh, in the other campaign when the official government was running their traditional presidential election campaign where, you know, the candidates had already been pre chosen in smoke filled rooms, et cetera. Um, and the Zapatistas said, well, we are going to do the other campaign. We are going to take our message around to ordinary people, talk with them about what their concerns are, and uh, that kind of, of connection. Really, in some ways, derailed the official campaign or upstaged it. Uh, It was much more interesting than anything the politicians were doing. And uh, so I think that uh, that's the message that we can take away that we don't have to be satisfied uh, with the official government structures and uh, politicians, that if we don't like it, we can be the change. Um, And right now, uh, there is a lot of frustration in our own society with the way government is functioning or not functioning, with the disconnect that people feel, with the squabbling and the polarization uh, between political parties and structures when, when it's really just a kind of self-serving game. Um, and unfortunately, unscrupulous right-wing politicians try to capitalize on that frustration. Um, but I think people can also um uh, read a more hopeful message into the alternatives and and build that if we stop thinking that some outside force is going to save us i think that that's the the message that we can take from this inspiration the zapatistas themselves are not going to save us or lead us um they have been an interesting example and they have invited us uh to take that message to heart and do something with it in our own realms
0: you know we're talking about um Indigenous peoples of Chiapas, and and I know it's kind of it touched on maybe indirectly, but in, in this message of hopefulness and just uh, the work and and um, the the legacy of uh, the community members uh, have created just in twenty eight years of the EZLN's existences. How does that look in terms of the future generations? Because um, so oftentimes we're talking about now the relationship with the state and what these uh, autonomous cultural forms of uh, expression look like. But how, how does that relate to the, few, to the youth in uh, Chiapas and future generations? hmm
1: I think that the future clearly really is in the, the youth, and that's not just in Chiapas, but everywhere. Right. Um, in the Escuelita, the school that the Zapatistas organized to kind of school everyone in um, how to be a rebel and how to think in an alternative kind of way, right. uh, this was at a moment when really it was a change of generations for the, San, the Zapatista movement. Right. Um, it had been at that point, about 20 years. And so that's roughly a generation. And it was the young people who were leading those little schools and who weren't just you know, mouthing the words of what they had been taught in a more institutionalized kind of school. Um, I had an opportunity to spend some time in many of the autonomous schools in the Zapatista communities. And often they don't use textbooks. They certainly don't use the government textbooks but they have the community sort of create their own texts. They uh, have the elders in the community pass on their experiences to the the younger generations. Um, And I think that's uh, very hopeful, that sort of way of thinking about um, not rigid uh, continuity, but more continuity with change, uh, continuing uh, our existence by adapting, by learning uh, for the future. Um, If we think about climate change in the world, I mean, it's the young climate change activists. Everyone has heard of Greta Thunberg, but there are also uh, activists like the um, uh, uh, African activist Nakate and others who didn't get to travel to the expensive global climate change conferences, but who are representing another generation that is concerned about uh, making sure that we have a planet around to to be on um, in the future. Uh, This uh, pandemic has shown uh, just how uh, the old-fashioned way of doing things, of uh, wealthy governments hoarding resources and thinking that they're somehow going to become more secure, that's just a non-starter. That's not a viable way to sustain our existence. And I think young people understand this, and young people are frustrated and um, angry that um, the older models of um, the way authority has been constituted uh, are um, not very useful for humanity. So um, I think the future is in um, young people organizing, uh, taking some inspiration from examples before them, but also making their own path.
2: Richard, it seems like what you just said in Larry's question kind of revolves around is it going to be a continuum And all the articles, information, discussions revolve around the culture, revolve around how the elders transmit the culture and then how they're that with our global community is fascinating, to say the least, whether it be music, art, uh, murals, um, poetry, whether it be cultural old stories, and that's... You know, and sharing those old stories about this is indigenous struggle. This is a first people struggle. However, you want to articulate that indigenous people struggle, that it is a realm of cultivating and also giving pride in indigenous youth. Number one, and you already expressed that giving pride uh, for it, uh, for just youth in particular, and that the worldwide phenomenon of the youth tackling these questions to tie into the culture is so phenomenal that the Zapatistas have not only mastered it, it is indigenous, first people struggle, and that how they gravitated to understanding to the left and below. Would you you think not?
1: I agree with you. I think that culture is a living practice. It's not something in a museum. It's not something rigid. It's not about... Uh, never changing anything. It's about reflecting on yourself, your values, and your community. Um, and indigenous people have been doing that, and that's been key to survival for indigenous people. Um, and um, you know, there are other ways of, uh, of uh, practicing our life here on earth that cut us off from our roots and our Uh, ancestral knowledge, and uh, those have been kind of the ways of death. That's what's perpetuating the fossil fuel industry and um, uh, fueling uh, climate change, those old ways. So we have much to learn from people who are trying to stay in touch with their culture and tradition and community. Um, And very often that um, effort to sustain and recognize and value community Uh, is uh, seen as a threat by the powers that be who want to exterminate uh, those distinctive elements of existence. So that's why um, there are many people in struggle who say that um, existence is resistance. And for indigenous communities, existence is not just physical existence, it's that too, but it's also the uh, reproduction of community knowledge and, um, and culture Uh, that really that identity uh, is the existence for indigenous people and that identity in harmony uh, with the earth and with other communities Um, rather than uh, trying to have a kind of uniform model, everyone is a a worker bee in one great big production machine. um, It's not all about uh, economic growth and um, producing more and bigger Um, And I think many indigenous communities understand that in a way that others are still kind of coming to terms with.
0: The moment of silence is over. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. Our special programming on the 28th anniversary of the EZLN's resistance, self-determination, and successes in uplifting indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Richard Stoller-Scholk. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Kupa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time... The moment of silence is over
1: And for the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom
2: manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains We yeah. Our
0: fears try not to become what we've been told Wearing our souls on the thread. The moment of silence is over.